morning, faith community. <clears throat> My name's Erin Davidget. I'm currently serving as a 10th grade, 10th grade girls leader at Refuge. I'll take your tips later. Just kidding. Please join me today. We will be reading from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 921 in the Bibles and the chairs in front of you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the time of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to church today. My name is Tim, if we've never met before. And uh, Philippians uh, is a great letter uh, to look at in a, a mini-series about marriage because Philippians was written to a church that was having a hard time coming together and being one. And, oh, and by the way, I think it's page 980 if you wanted to follow along uh, in that. Is that? You double-checked? One of us is wrong. <laughs> Someone is right. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, anyway, before we uh, get to Philippians, though, just because of the nature of what we're talking about in this little series, uh, and because I think it's pretty new to most or all of us, I want to just talk again about why we're even doing this and then briefly review what Tim Porter shared last week, okay? So in this series, we're asking the question, what does Scripture mean when it says, a quote, this is Ephesians 5.23. This was part of our reading last week. The husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Or, that's the question that we're asking in this series. And we're doing that because of all the things that we could talk about regarding marriage and gender, this is probably the most confusing and probably the most difficult to believe. Uh, of all the things we could talk about, this probably feels the most dangerous to us. And often when we hear the word head or headship, which you're going to if you read the Bible, okay? Uh, this is in the Bible. It's in several places in the scripture, so you're going to come across this. And often what comes to mind immediately uh, is 
uh, a set of stereotypes about who's going to do what kinds of things at home, or probably most often what comes to mind immediately is the word boss. Headship is about who gets their way and who gets to make the big decisions. In the worst cases, and this is part of why we're teaching this as well, in the worst case scenarios, Ephesians chapter 5 and other scriptures like this uh, can be used by husbands to manipulate, domineer, silence, punish, uh, and control their wives. And as a, as a congregation, as a church, we want everyone to be able to recognize the difference between what scripture really is saying and what it is not saying because if you stay in the church long enough, you will have relationships or friendships with people who are being, who are having scripture used against them in those ways, okay? Uh, sometimes uh, it's also, it can be used by wives to try to fix their husbands to be the kinds of husbands they want them to be. And so wives sometimes have, you know, an ideal picture of what they want life at home to be like. The husband has no idea what she's talking about and wives will bring Ephesians 5 to them to say, hey, you're the head and that's what, this is what that means. So do it. So in reaction to these, um, we'll say abuses of the principle of headship, we've completely gone the other way. We reject headship as an oppressive, antiquated notion. Some, sometimes Christians will even say, you know, this whole idea is actually about Roman household codes or something like that. Uh, it is not. We're talking about something that scripture always roots in the story of Genesis and, and God's design for our genders. But even in the church sometimes, in reaction to the abuses, we will talk sometimes like there is no difference between men and women beyond the obvious biology, beyond the obvious biological differences. Or at the very least, we would say sometimes, surely God would never assign different roles to people based on nothing but their gender. For the, for the modern mind, the idea that a difference in roles uh, would be a good thing. A difference in roles is always equated in our minds with a difference in value, a difference in equality, and it will always lead to abuse. And so even in the church sometimes, we join the world in saying, sure, there are obvious biological differences between men and women, uh, but that's where it ends. There is no larger purpose to the shape of our bodies. No, there's no larger story being told through our genders. Yes, our bodies are different, but our souls are essentially the same. And that is a devastating doctrine. C.S. Lewis, as always, hits the nail right on the head when he writes, this will be on the screen, it, he, the devil, always sends errors into the world in pairs of opposites. He relies on your extra dislike of one to draw you gradually into the opposite one. And that is exactly what is happening in our understanding of uh, God's design for gender, in, in our righteous and commendable indignation at the abuse of these scriptures, especially against women, we have swallowed the opposite error, hook, line, and sinker. That there's no larger story being told here and that our, although our bodies are shaped differently, our souls are identical. And 
I just want to say too, as pastors here at Faith Community, sometimes we hear the most awful stories about this stuff. About husbands or wives caught in, in something like hell by husbands who domineer and demand and punish and scream obscenities at their wives in the name of Jesus. Using Ephesians 5 and things like that. And the, the answer to that is not less teaching about headship, but more and better, clearer teaching about it. Because just as often uh, as pastors here, we hear from wives saying, he just won't engage with me at all. I bring concerns about our relationship to him and he's always hurt by it. And he withdraws from me and he won't fight with me. Uh, he, he never hurts me or yells at me, but he does not love me. And we're not, we're not one. And I feel alone in my own home. So what scripture is saying, when it says that, hus that a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of his church's body, uh, here's our summary from last week. This is what uh, Porter shared. A mysterious and organic union exists between a husband and wife like the union that exists between Christ and the church for which husbands are uniquely accountable. Let me say that again. Headship means that a mysterious and organic union exists between a husband and wife like the union that exists between Christ and the church for which husbands are uniquely accountable. Let me just take that apart a piece by piece because it's, I just think this is so new to the way we think about things. Uh, it's mysterious and organic. In Ephesians 5.31, okay, this is uh, something from our reading last week as well. The Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis and he says, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's calling to mind that whole story of Adam and Eve's creation in Genesis 2. And then he says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that whole thing about gender, about marriage, about the two becoming one flesh, this is about Christ and the church. In Scripture, a mystery is something that was hidden and kind of left you scratching your head, but suddenly we see what Jesus has done and we say, oh, that's what that was all about. That's what mystery means in Scripture. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are something that, you know, they come along and suddenly, oh, this thing, now I understand why God did it this way and gender is one of those things. That sex, gender, and marriage are a mystery means that you and I are meant to see through these things to something greater that is beyond them. This is why Jesus says, in the end, okay, at, at the redemption of all things, there won't be marriage anymore because the thing it was pointing to is here now. Okay, Genesis chapter 2 is describing much more than just the physical coming together of a husband and wife. It's describing the mingling of souls, heart, mind, and body in one flesh, yet somehow still two distinct persons. And we're meant to see through that and say, oh, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says that I belong to him and he to me. 
We say it's organic then, so it's a mystery and it's organic because that mystery is being worked out in your very tangible, physical, this-worldly bodies. Okay, it's self-evident that male and female bodies, for example, are meant to go together. That's why your sex and marriage are sacred and holy. And marriage and gender and sex are, are organic in the sense that, okay, just like, just like every body follows a certain pattern. You got a head and arms and hands and feet and legs and a torso. Just like every body has a pattern, there are no two bodies in the history of the world that are exactly alike. I suppose identical twins. Forget that. Forget twins. It's not real. There are no two bodies exactly alike except, you know, that. Well, marriage is the same. Every marriage follows a certain pattern. A husband, a wife, a lifelong covenant union. You've never met two marriages the same, right? Because you have two really different people coming together with different histories, different personalities, different heart idols, different desires. And, you know, my relationship with Darcy just is never going to look exactly the same way that your marriage might because there's just this organic mystery being expressed there. I was talking with a This is some time ago. An elder told me once, you know, I I think people looking into my marriage from the outside would conclude we don't have a biblical marriage because we lack so many of the gender stereotypes in the way we interact. But it is a biblical. Tim and Kathy Keller always said the same thing about their marriage, that Tim Keller just naturally was not an aggressive, assertive person. Kathy had no problem with that. And so over the course of 40 years, they had to learn to, to work out this dance of God's design for their relationship. So it's mysterious and organic. And then it's like the union that exists between Christ and the church. So I, I'm going to use a, a theological word here because I don't see any way around it. Uh, headship is covenantal. It's covenantal. It's like the union that exists between Christ and the church. Uh, so here's an example. Next week, we are baptizing people here at Faith Community Church. In baptism, baptism is a, is a covenant-affirming act. We get up in front of the church and we acknowledge before our family and friends, I'm giving myself heart, mind, and body to the Lord Jesus. I'm trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin and the hope of eternal life. And then we make a vow, right, in the tub, That person makes a vow. I'm I'm committing today to following Jesus by the grace of God all the rest of my life until he takes me home. And then what do we do in baptism? We put the name of God on you. We say, uh, on the basis of your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and into the water you go. What are we saying there? We're saying the church is acknowledging that you are now joined to his body. Publicly, you're part of a public covenant that we all recognize together and Christ is our head and you are part of his body. And then the church, at least here at Faith Community Church, you come out of the water and what do we do? We cheer for you. We, you know, yay! As though to say, we receive you into the body of Christ. So where before there was just Timmy, Tommy, Susie, Janie, when you come out of the water, now there is just one head and one body, celebrating together. Now, Christians, Christians in the non-Western world understand this better than we do. 
Uh, because in the Western world, religion is such a private thing. Spirituality is such a private thing. We get baptized sometimes in private. It's not a public act. Whereas in the non-Western world, there, there are contexts where, for example, in many Muslim contexts, okay, if you want to follow Jesus privately, that's fine. But as soon as you are baptized, they know what that means. You have been publicly sometimes even legally covenanted to a new head and now you are in real trouble. Now, marriage, we do exactly the same thing in marriage. In marriage, we get up in front of family and friends, we pledge ourselves to one another in love, we exchange vows to love, honor, and cherish each other and so forth, and then we, we literally put the name of the head on the family. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce to you for the very first time Bob and Betty Smith, and everybody cheers. We're saying we, we publicly recognize this new covenantal entity called the Smiths. Just a minute ago, there was just Bob and Betty. Now suddenly there's this new thing called Bob and Betty for which Bob is uniquely accountable. Here, here's just one implication of this, okay? Just one example. Jesus then is in some profound sense not his own person anymore. Uh, he's our head and so when he stands before the Father, where are you? You're in him. In some, re I mean this is like all of your hope rests on this, what I'm saying right now. That when Jesus, your head, stands before the Father, you are there in him, covenantally bound to him. What does that mean for husbands? If, if your relationship with your wife is not a private affair, but, but a public covenant, what does that mean for husbands? It means that in some sense, husbands, you are not your own. And there's some, you know, in some real sense, when you stand before God, uh, either in the corporate worship gathering or in your private prayer, there's some real sense in which it's not just here I am, Bob, but here we are. Here are the Smiths. So what, what, what this means is that the problems in our homes are never her problems anymore. We never get to say, the woman thou gavest to me. Imagine the Lord Jesus pointing a wagging finger at the church and saying to his father, this church that you gave me is ridiculous. And we do it all the time to our covenant partner. It is never, there she is, it is for men, it is always. Here we are. And, and she is me. Uh, so, a marriage is something for which husbands are uniquely accountable. That's the third thing. And this is the most sobering thing that we're going to say in this series. If a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church, then he is accountable for his marriage in the same way that Christ is accountable for you. And this is one of those places where words really matter. 
Uh, there's a difference between being responsible for something and being accountable for something. So don't respond, but this is just Christian gospel 101. Don't answer out loud. But is Jesus responsible for my sin? No. No. Jesus is not responsible before God for what I have done and said. Does God look at Jesus and say, you did thus and such, therefore I'm going to punish you? No. Uh, I am responsible before God for all that I say and do, just as my wife Darcy is responsible before God for all that she says and does. But who is held accountable? My head is. Jesus, my head, is held accountable for what I have done. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is the center of the center of the center of the gospel. And this is what we're saying in baptism next week, that Jesus has joined himself to us as our head so that our sin really has been transferred completely to him and his righteousness and holiness really is ours. And this is the kind of relationship husbands are to imitate at home. This is headship. For, for young men, this is what you are being prepared for. I am not saying, and Scripture doesn't say, that a husband can save his wife, okay? Husbands, you have no righteousness that you get to, like, impute to her and fix her. What Scripture is saying, though, is, this is Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives. In other words, you are to have this mindset not, I'm the boss, but somehow mysteriously and truly, she is me. And whatever she needs to grow up into Christ and to mature and to flourish, if I can do it, I will, even at the cost of my life. One of the most sobering, most awesome moments in Scripture is when God comes to Adam after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree, in Genesis 3, 9, it says, quote, God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And it's singular, singular. He doesn't come saying, where are Adam and Eve? He says, where is Adam? And what did you do? All of the instructions regarding the garden and the tree and everything else, those are instructions that God gave to Adam and Adam is the one held accountable for what happened. Husband's headship means that a day is coming when God is going to come to you and say, where were you and what did you do? Why are we talking about this? Um, first of all, men, receive the grace of God this morning. Receive the grace of God right now. Every, remember everything that we talked about last month. James chapter four, verse six, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. 
We, we do not share this to beat you down. There doesn't need to be a, what, what we want is, to, is a sense of sobriety though about what is going to happen. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, well, who is sufficient for these things? Like Paul cries out in 2 Corinthians. He gives more grace. Last, last week, Tim Porter did the preaching. And sometimes we call each other just to like process what we're thinking about saying to you. So he calls me on Thursday. And he explains Genesis chapter two to me. Genesis chapter two says that for this reason, because she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, for this reason, a husband, not the wife, the husband, leaves his family and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh, meaning it, the husband is uniquely accountable for this one flesh union, the unity of, of the marriage is uniquely, it's the husband's unique responsibility. That's Thursday. Does anyone remember what the Wednesday before was? Valentine's Day the second worst day on the whole calendar, right? <laughs> so, so I start hating Valentine's Day in January. It's, all, it's just all, since sixth grade, since my first girlfriend in sixth grade, I've hated Valentine's Day. And it's hard for me and I don't understand it. You know, in years past, I have done better. Uh, actually, Porter kind of coached me up a little bit, and this is how you love your wife on Valentine's and I did better. This year, I mailed it in. It was kind of like, it's, it's Wednesday morning. What do I need to do today to not be in trouble tonight? That, that's the goal. <laughs> and then Thursday, Porter lays on me that the word of God says to men, you are accountable for the oneness and the unity and the sense of safety and security and blah, 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 blah in your marriage I just said, shut up, Porter. Just shut up. <laughs> why do I, why am I accountable for the things she's better at anyway? But this is the way that God has built things. I, I was talking to another friend. This is months and months ago. Okay, so I'm going to make a blanket statement. You're all just going to nod and agree with what I say, even if it's not true for you. Generally speaking, though, spirituality comes more easily to women than men, okay? Don't email me about that. I know that's a really large statement to make. But the church has always been more full of women than men because it, it just kind of comes more naturally. I was talking with a friend. We were talking about this issue right here. And he said, I think part of the reason is because men just, men just want to feel something spiritual in their relationship with God. I mean, how many men are like, you know, I would read my Bible if something would happen, you know. I would come to worship if there were like something that happened in that moment. I would engage with God more personally, but I just want to feel something. I just want to know that he's there and he loves me and blah, blah, blah. And he said, how many of our wives are saying exactly the same thing to their husbands? I just want to feel something from you. I just want to know you love me and then I would respond to you. I would engage with you and here's the men saying the same thing to their head and then demanding things from their wives. That's why we're talking about this stuff because your marriage, whether, whether you're doing it well or not, your marriage is preaching a gospel. Mm -hmm. So, Ephesians 5 says husbands are to love their wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Philippians chapter 2 is one of those places where we get a window into how. How did Jesus love his church, his bride, and give himself up? So let's just walk through this uh, quickly if we can. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. I just keep that on the screen for a minute. Here's a parallel passage at the very end of 2 Corinthians 13.4. Paul ends his letter by saying, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's almost exactly the same thing. There's actually a few places where this pattern of thought shows up. And I just share that to say that this is the foundational assumption of God's word, that before anything else, above and beyond anything about being a head, a body, a helper, or whatever other role, every single Christian is first and foremost a sinner that has been caught up in this eternal Trinitarian fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit by grace alone. And Paul is just saying, if that does anything for you at all, then let's talk about how to be one with each other. Jesus prayed in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, listen to this, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. I mean, what, what an amazing, I mean, that's the language of, of marriage and covenant and union. Paul says here in Philippians, if that does anything for you, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love of God, then let's talk about unity. If I could get my, uh, my fruit to root picture up on the screen again. I hope you recognize this picture. Does everyone recognize this picture? Okay. Men, this mystery of headship that you're caught up really matters. It really matters, it's really important, it's important for the, for the thriving of your family, the role that you've been given really matters. But at the end of the day, we really are just play acting a little bit. It really is just a shadow and you are not actually Jesus. Okay, you are not actually the Father. So what we, what we are is not first and foremost a head and a body, but we are above all else two people with hearts full of idols brought together by the grace of God to help each other grow up and make it home. So this is the first thing. Before you would, before you would even attempt to lean into a role of some kind, understand that this is first. She's got desire she's got, that Jesus is working out of her and so do you. And that's why we come to this whole thing completely dependent on our relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit by grace alone. Second, he goes on to say then in verses three and four, he goes, Paul goes cosmic. Okay. And we, in, in these verses, we really are treading on holy ground here. So the Gospels tell us 
about the crucifixion of Jesus, Philippians is one of these places uh, where, where we get the, the curtain pulled back a little bit to say, and this is what Jesus was thinking, and this is what motivated him as he went to the cross. And he says in verse 3, first of all, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, you know, when you hear sermons like this, let's say your marriage is stuck or you're just not connecting with each other the way that you wish. It hasn't turned out maybe the way you envisioned. One of the things that we're going to do naturally and automatically is hear about this concept, headship, and we're going to ask ourselves, is this going to work? Okay, so I'm uniquely accountable for the state of my marriage, and one day God is going to come to me and ask, where were you? And what did you do? Did you cherish her and nourish her? Did you create a context of safety and oneness? Okay, so I'm being asked to lean into something I hardly understand at all. And I'm not even sure where to start. But I know if I try to re-engage, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to feel stupid and humiliated. And I've been down this road. I've tried, it's not like I've never tried before. And it is, it's just easier, frankly, to get angry and to withdraw. So why would this be worth it? Is this going to work? And what we mean by that is, will this, if I lean into my role as head, am I going to have more peace in my life? Like, is there going to be more peace at home? If I try to love her again, is she going to stop bothering me then? If, if I re-engage, am I going to get, am I going to have more sex? Uh, am I going to have the free time I want to focus on my hobbies and whatever? Is this, is this going to work? And Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. You remember from a few weeks ago, your heart, everything about you springs from your heart and every single one of us, you and your wife, have these desires that are waging war against each other and you, sh- you should not be asking, is this going to work? That's not the goal. Remember James 4, 6 from a few weeks ago. God is not going to help you bow down to your idols. So the question is not, is this thing that Prince is talking about, headship, is this going to work? That is not the question. The question is, will I believe and trust God with the things that my heart desperately desires. The goal is to glorify God and to grow up into Christ. And yes, yes, by the way, generally, marriages are healed. But it does not happen in two weeks or even two years. He goes on to say in verses 5 through 9, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you have access to this, Christians. And then he describes this multi-step process downward. And he says, uh, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider his co-equality and shared divinity with God something to be held on at all costs. But he emptied himself 
So there's his first step down. Puts on a human nature. And then another step down by taking the form of a servant. So he didn't just become a person. He became a nobody. He became a slave, essentially. And then verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, nailed naked to a cross. Down, 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 down. And at any time, he could have said, this is too much. This is too much for me. She doesn't deserve this. She's not responding to me. This is not working. She does not understand who I am. She cannot talk to me in that way. At any point, Jesus could have said, this is not worth it, and I'm not doing this, but he didn't. Paul is saying, if Paul were preaching this sermon today, he would say to husbands, do not forget your Savior. There is nothing you will ever be asked to do in your marriage that he has not already done for you and much, much more. Don't forget him. And you will find strength and courage and hope. And then he says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that we see in Philippians 2 is that it's not necessarily because of the cross that Jesus was exalted or is exalted. A lot of people throughout history have been crucified and are not worthy of honor. It isn't, it isn't necessarily because of the cross. It's the mindset of Jesus that God honors. Christ is exalted and rules over everything at this moment because of what was in his heart. He's exalted because of why he went to the cross. This is the exaltation of Jesus is God's response, not to any particular act, but to the whole way that Jesus lived his life. Alec Mortier, I don't know how to say his last name, puts it this way. From the brightness of God's glory to the dust of death and curse, Jesus showed obedience to his head and love for his body, and the Father loves to see it so. For this is the principle. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is what the word of God says. Remember James 4, 6? He gives more grace. I don't know what state your marriage is in this morning. Maybe this is landing on you for the very first time in your life. Maybe your marriage is over. Maybe you're here today, you're divorced, you're separated. He gives more grace. Everything that you need, you have right now, right in this moment. He goes on to say, but God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Does this mean that if you re-engage with your wife, if you, if you seek to rekindle that oneness together, does this mean that she will finally honor you the way you desire so much to be honored. I can't promise you that. 
Does it mean that she'll show you the respect you deserve in front of of your kids? I, I can't promise you that. Does it mean that uh, you'll have the peace that you wish you had in your home? I, I, can't, I can't guarantee you. This is what God promises. That you will look and sound and feel and think more and more like Jesus. And God himself will be with you providing grace to you in every moment of the day and you will know Jesus and the power of his resurrection in a way that few will. And yes, I do get to say, yes, generally speaking, over time, most wives respond to this kind of love from their husbands, but that is not the goal. The goal is to stand before the living God one day and when he comes to you and says, where were you? To say, I was there. I did everything that you asked me in the power of the Spirit. I I leaned daily on your grace. I was there. And he will say, well done. If if you're here, you know, and, you know, the divorce is 10 years old and, or this, you know, the separation is complete, what do you do with this? I think that you should ask the Lord that. Divorce is a real thing, okay? You're not entitled to go back to your ex-wife and seek that oneness again or whatever. But you, you should ask the Lord that question. We have stories here in this congregation of men who, uh, who, did, who have gone to ex-wives to say, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking for anything from you, I just wanna tell you I was wrong. I didn't love you, I didn't cherish you. I, We have stories in this congregation of men who've gone to their children, their adult children, and said, you know, mom was was really bitter and angry your whole time growing up, and you, you blamed her for that. This is what I was doing. This is why mom was so angry for so long. We've had men do that. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord would have you do. For those who are married today, we're just praying for you that God would strengthen you with his grace. Those of you living with someone you're not married to, you're you're playing house, you're playing head and body, but you've never made that commitment. You need to obey the Lord because he's going to come to you someday and say, what were you doing there? What was that all about? As we prepare for communion this morning, I'm gonna gonna invite the the ushers. Ushers, would you guys come on up and begin serving the elements of communion? As we prepare for communion, so so baptism, which we're gonna celebrate next week, is the the covenant-affirming ceremony that Jesus has given to the church to make this union public. He's given another sign, another organic, tangible sign called communion. Uh, And this is the ongoing uh, sign of our covenant. What we're doing when we take this piece of bread and this cup is we're saying to each other, I'm I'm still a part of you. What we're saying to the Lord Jesus is, I still belong to you. You're still my head. I'm still a part of your body. And I just want to say, as we prepare, 
we, do not sh- we, we don't share this uh, on the basis of our performance this week. We don't share this together because your marriage is doing really well. We don't share this because of anything you've done. We come by grace alone. We say thank you, Jesus, for the promise of James 4, 6 that you will give more grace. Would you help me today? Help me this week. So I just want to give you time while the elements are being passed. Would you just pray for yourself? Pray for your marriage. If you're not married, would you pray for those around you? And we'll share together in just a moment. Just hold on to it while it's being passed. Scripture says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to sing while the cup is passed. I invite you to just stay seated and continue praying and singing, and then we'll share the cup together in a minute.